You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lynn Marie Morsky, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. LSD, mushrooms, acid. I had no idea what Alex was on. All I knew is that I received a call from his fraternity brothers. I had showed up to his fraternity house, and there he was, lying on the ground, sweaty, anxious, and hallucinating. I was the only one there who was sober or who had a car, so I got him into my car and took him to the emergency room, and there we were, two medical students in the midst of the emergency room, and he was tripping. I remember being incredibly ashamed because this was the profession that I aspired to be in. And yet here I was a helpless bystander with his friend. Eventually, Alex recovered all of his testing, his EKG. It was all normal. And he came down from this relatively intact But over the years, as a physician, I formed and maintained a bias against psychedelics based on my early experiences. And maybe, just maybe, I was wrong. Lynn Marie Morsky is a board-certified family medicine and sports medicine physician who is the president of the Psychedelic Medicine Association and the creator and host of the Plant Medicine Podcast. Lynn Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I loved your introduction. I am so excited to have you. And let's start with that introduction. It seems like there is a mythology based on psychedelics and bad trips. How much of that is mythology and how much of that is reality? Well, the mythology is based on the use of these irresponsibly, just like, I mean, imagine how many stories we have about how many, I mean, how many stories start off with, oh, this person was so hammered. This person was so drunk. I mean, you're friend completely recovered because there's almost no overdosing on most of these psychedelics, but we know there's death from alcohol overconsumption and overdose and opioids. I mean, there's death from things that we prescribe every day. And it's, it's just that psychedelics, because they, you know, they came with this kind of counterculture and then they got really demonized and kind of an odd bystander in this war on drugs. And unfortunately, that's what we heard. And what we hear very little about is the responsible use that can be so therapeutic. And so luckily in what's going on now, the psychedelic renaissance, which is what led you to reconsider your thoughts about that, we're finding out how powerful these can be as therapeutic agents when used responsibly. Just like 
people are finding out with cannabis and CBD and other substances, like there, you know, you can overdose on Tylenol. There's a lot of things that have a great purpose and can be abused. And so the mythology is real. Like a lot of crazy things can happen on if you are tripping, as you say, on a journey and you're not prepared and you don't have a guide there or a sitter or you don't know what dose you took that just with anything, you know, if you take some alcoholic concoction, you don't know what's in that, or you take some, some street medicine that you think is a oxycodone and it's not like there's dangers in not knowing what you take in anything. And so there's, there is mythology, but there's, there's so much more to psychedelics. There's so many things you just said that are interesting there. One is the demonization, which certainly happened. And the other is the psychedelic renaissance, which is occurring now. Before we get to all that, how did you get interested in studying plant medicine? I mean, you were a family physician, uh, doctor, as well as sports medicine. How did plant medicine come into this? Well, even more so than that, the rarity of me studying psychedelics and plant medicine is even stranger because I'm very, well, I'm from a very conservative background. I'm from the Midwest. I did not have an alcoholic drink till I think I was 26. I had never tried cannabis until I was like 35. I'm, I'm behind the ball on all of the substances, period. And it, you know, in what will sound like a completely cliched story, once you, I mean, I'm a doctor and a lawyer, right? So I've got all these very conservative things in my background. But at Burning Man one year, I had my first experience with LSD. And it was actually none of the things I just described. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't know the exact dose and I didn't have a sitter and all the things that would have been safest. Luckily, the dose was lowish. But over the period of that night, I had like a number of really, at the time, I wouldn't have known to characterize them as such, but like therapeutic realizations during that journey. And this is in 2013. And I just kind of put that back in my head, like, wow, I realized a lot of things while I was uh, on that LSD. And then later I had opportunity to take some psilocybin, which is the magic mushrooms, as you referred to before. And every time I did those and those I was doing with slightly more of a, you know, intentional setting, but I would have more realizations. And I kept thinking like, wow, I continue to have these realizations on these medicines. I had no idea that this whole time there is something called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that was founded now 34 years ago. That is its entire goal is to research the science behind how these psychedelics work. And so I found out about that in 2017. I thought, oh, these aren't, these aren't one-off experiences I'm having. The entire world has these you know, therapeutic findings when they're taking these in the right setting. And now we've got studies to back this up. And they had been doing studies before they got demonized. So they were doing studies with LSD back in the 50s. And as recently as the 80s, they were using MDMA, which people may more commonly know as, as ecstasy, but it's the, the main ingredient in ecstasy. And they were using that for like couples therapy before that got put as schedule one as well, because it got abused in certain party scenes. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, there's an entire field out there of psychedelic science. And then in 2018, I had my first ayahuasca experience. And we can talk a bit about what that is, but it's like a South American tea brew that is made of psychedelic substances. And I, you know, I had the proverbial 10, 20 years of therapy in one night. And after that, I mean, at this time, I'm working at the VA. I'm a Department of Defense employee. I can't tell anybody I'm doing this. I certainly can't tell my patients about these things. But I'm seeing patient after patient that is suffering from PTSD, depression, TBI, all these things that that psychedelics have been known to address, and I can't tell them anything about it. And so I became really passionate that when I finally like got the courage to leave the VA, it was going to be my mission to spread the word about these substances, not necessarily to people, to patients, but to clinicians, because 
I could tell one person at a time all day long, but if I tell one clinician and they can understand the power, they can, they can pass that along with everybody who comes to them seeking help. You use the term therapeutic realization. It's almost a little bit of an ephemeral term. Do you care to discuss with us any of those realizations you had on that night on Burning Man? It was your first time using a substance like this. Do you recall one thing that stuck in your mind? You're like, wow, that is something I've been working on for a long time and it just hit me. Oh, totally. I could tell you exactly what it was. So like they kind of dripped along through the night and then I got like an aha moment at the end where they all came together. You guys can just laugh along with me at how ridiculous this story is. But, you know, I take my LSD and then I'm dancing and, and I look over and I'm like, wow, I'm dancing really like low to the ground. I'm really getting down. And it was like, oh, look at these moves are good. You know, I've been a dancer for life, but I was just thinking, man, my dancing's looking even better today. And then as I look over, I'm like, my thighs are looking thinner. I think I look tanner than I usually do, right? Like I'm having all these like nice thoughts about myself, right? And then at the end of the night, I go into a porta potty and lo and behold, somebody has put a mirror on the back of this porta potty door, which seems criminal to me. Who needs to see themselves <laughs> in a porta potty? But they had. So as it was slamming closed, I see that it's going to slam closed. And I have been up all night dancing and biking around Burning Man. And so it's like six in the morning, right? So as it's about to shut, this fear kicks in. It was like, oh my God, you're going to see yourself and you're going to look like a hot mess. And this is going to be like, you're not even going to see what's going on in the mirror. Oh my gosh. You know, like years of your makeup's going to be a mess and blah, blah, blah. As the thing finally slams, I see my face in the mirror and I look just fine. And it was in that moment that I realized the entire night, this, you know, spirit of the medicine or whatever it is, it had been trying to show me how other people see me nobody's as hard on me as I am. Nobody's looking at me like, gosh, you're so white. Get a tan. Oh my gosh, your dance moves aren't that good. Your thighs are too big. Your makeup's messed up. Like I'm so much harder on myself than everybody else is. And so I think it spent the entire night showing me through other people's eyes and teaching me how to look more kindly on myself. Self-acceptance, such a fundamental issue that we all struggle with. It sounds like it was quite a night you talk about plant medicines, and I've seen you use the term entheogenics before. I, I know you discuss things like cannabis and CBD. Probably today we're talking more about psychedelics. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the different medicines or substances and what those terms mean? Yeah, it's really hard to get a good term that encompasses a lot of things. So the reason that I called the podcast the plant medicine podcast and not the psychedelics podcast is because I really wanted to cover CBD and cannabis kind of as gateways into the others. Like, you know, they've always been called the gateway drug. Well, they should be in a good way to the other things that can also open your mind because we know now like in medicine, if we're ignoring what CBD and cannabis can do, that's I think that's just like a Hippocratic violation. Like we know these things can be helpful. And I think once people accept those, and it's so much more prevalent, you know, it's recreationalized legal in California and a bunch of other states. If people can accept that, hopefully, then they're, gonna, they're, they're already subscribed to the podcast and then they'll listen to the psychedelics part. But plant medicine is essentially kind of a, I almost want to say it's a euphemistic word that a lot of people use for psychedelics, because a lot of the psychedelics we're talking about aren't from plants. First off, mushrooms are from a fungus. LSD, MDMA, those are synthetic. So there's a few of the psychedelics that are that are actually plant-based. But again, like when people want to sound a little bit, that, and this is all part of the stigma, right? Psychedelics have a stigma. Plant medicine sounds like a thing that's serious, right? And so it's, you know, terminology really between those two is not that different. Entheogens, it's essentially anything that brings you closer to God is, is, is I think, the, the actual Latin root of the word. But another term that's often used is empathogens. 
these things create a sense of of empathy and connection and oneness. So there there are a lot of terms. You know, a lot of people don't like the term hallucinogens, but some do use that. And some with like ketamine, it's a dissociative, not necessarily a classic psychedelic. So there's a lot of different terminology. And at first, I was kind of getting caught up in it, and now I just kind of throw it all under the term of psychedelics. And that, so what we're covering when I mean when I'm referring to psychedelics is psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, LSD, ayahuasca. I even throw in ketamine, which is, like I said, a dissociative more than a psychedelic, but it definitely has psychedelic properties. 5-MeO-DMT, DMT, Ibogaine, mescaline, peyote, San Pedro. Those, I think those are the main ones that we're covering. And generally this idea of like an altered state, right? Or a different state, which I think separates it from things like cannabis, which people don't necessarily associate as such. Right. Cannabis at its high levels and mostly like in edible form can be used psychedelically. It can have psychedelic properties. If you've ever had an edible that you did not want to be on, like, and and you see that almost in like movies, it's in, it's, you know, in comedies all the time, like, oh, I took this pot brownie. Now this, I mean, it can be very psychedelic. In fact, there are practitioners that have been on my, we've done episodes about cannabis assisted psychotherapy, because at certain doses, you can get some of those same same releases of trauma and same insights, those kinds of things. But yeah, generally the, you know, the, the use of cannabis and CBD doesn't have quite that same effect. And then, you know, people are using psychedelics to microdose. Those are sub perceptible doses. So you won't necessarily hallucinate or have those same effects, but the potential is there at the higher doses. I definitely want to get into the therapeutics, but before we do, can you talk a little about the history of psychedelics in the United States and where the demonization came from? It's a great question that I'm not necessarily the best person to answer on, but I will tell you in general. So LSD synthesized, I think, in Switzerland in the 30s or 40s. And then, you know, like it was it was called, I believe, Delcid was the pharmaceutical name and they were doing some studies with it. And I believe mescaline was actually the first psychedelic that they found that they actually located in a lab or whatever. So we've got uh, the history of those. And then, as we know, counterculture comes in the 60s and we've got the you know, the conservative side with the Vietnam War. And then we've got the counterculture telling everybody to drop out and tune in, turn on, drop out. And I think that's where the big clash came. And there were very few actual, like, terrible tragedies. Like, we, we all hear, maybe not everybody, but there's, you know, there's the story about somebody on one of these CIA MK Ultra experiments was on LSD and jumped out the window. Yes, but there have been people who've done that on alcohol and and whatever else. Like it was not just because LSD made this person suicidal. Like things happen with all kinds of substances, but you get one or two of those that get bad press and then everybody can point to them. And then also you've got your situation like your friend when these substances are new and we don't necessarily know how to handle them well, then sometimes they can get out of control and you've got these people with these you know, at the same time, all kinds of things are happening in the culture and kids are getting these crazy ideas. And I can imagine people who are very conservative wondering if they're coming from the psychedelics, you know, like what is that what's what's causing these kids to act so strangely? And so it was just essentially a clash of cultures. And it's really hard, you know, my personal opinion, I think a lot of opinion in the industry is that it's really hard to control people whose minds are getting blown open with psychedelics. And I mean, I've had veterans on my show before who've said, if I had done psychedelics before going into the service, I would have not gone into the service. I would have not been able to take the orders that way. And I wouldn't have been able to go kill somebody after, you know, psychedelics, they make you feel this intense form of connection. By the way, it doesn't last forever, you know, but you've, you're, you're there at least, you know, that day and maybe the day after you feel so connected and it makes it 
you know, I think he said for him, it would have been much harder to go and do the things he had to do as a soldier. And I think, you know, we were in the Vietnam War and that kind of thing. And it was really hard already to control people. You've got religious objectors and all those things. And so the last thing they wanted was these drugs opening people's minds further. And and I, I think there was just a lot, you know, Timothy Leary did some things and there was, all, you know, studies that were being done, maybe not so ethically. And there were just enough, uh, enough few bad actors combined with the conservative mindset that was in the government at the area. And it just combined to be this clash of things that ended up in most of these being schedule one. You know, it's interesting when I think back about my childhood, I grew up with two narratives about psychedelics that must have been told to me from one adult or another. One is that you would take LSD and then 30 years later, you would jump off a building like there'd be this delayed effect and all of a sudden you'd go crazy. That was one of them. The other is that you would take a psychedelic psychedelic and develop superhuman strength and rampage and kill a bunch of people. And it seemed like those two narratives I heard over and over again in childhood narratives I never see acted out as an adult. I've never seen any real news stories about that happening to anyone. Yeah, the flashback was like a, a major thing that I'd heard with LSD. I remember even after taking LSD at Burning Man and then nothing happening afterward, somebody wanted me to take some later with them. And I said, oh, no, I've got I've got exams. This, this isn't during law school. I've got exams this week. I don't have a flashback during exams. Like I was even still thinking that. And there are there's something called HPPD, which is hallucinogen perception persisting disorder or something. I'm botching the name, but it's if you do certain amounts of certain psychedelics and your your brain has a certain chemistry, some people can continue to have some symptoms that last. It's extremely rare, but it does happen. And so that's essentially what flashbacks are part of now, like in the actual DSM, they're, they're listed under that. It's very rare. And but it, it was a massive part, I think, of what is that of what you and I were both told as a thing that happens after you do LSD. 30 years later, you're going to have that flashback. Not a lot of that in my experience. So we've talked about a little bit of the history of psychedelics, and we're all pretty familiar with the idea of recreational use. There are definite therapeutic uses. You've touched on them a little bit, but can you clarify a little more for us? What are some of the major therapeutic uses that people are developing psychedelics with right now? Absolutely. Let me try to, I should write these down as I'm going, but four big ones I'd like to cover MDMA, which, like I said, is the the a component in ecstasy, it is in phase three trials as a therapy for PTSD. And we're not talking it by itself, but it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So there's psychotherapy before the journey day. We all, we call these journeys instead of trips. And on the journey day, you have two therapists in there with you for eight hours. And while you're on the MDMA, it can often take the amygdala offline just enough that if you've got a trauma that your subconscious has been fighting to keep out of your conscious, then the because it's afraid, the amygdala, the fear center goes offline, it can come up. And so then you can actually address the trauma with a therapist right then and there. You've got the two therapists in the room. And so they're finding that after I think two or three of these sessions with the psychotherapy, there's a PTSD cure rate at a year of like 66%. And we're not talking it's better it's gone. Like it no longer, I think it's the cap scale. It no longer qualifies for these patients as PTSD. You know, PTSD is extremely difficult to treat. In fact, everything we're doing now is basically a band-aid. This can actually get people cured from that's unheard of. So the FDA has designated MDMA a breakthrough therapy, which helped them fast track it through these process. Psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms, it's been found to be great for depression, but it's also been found to have like an 80% success rate at cigarette smoking cessation. Wow. So 
Yeah, that another thing that is terribly difficult to address. And we're not talking like you have to do that. That's what the, the beauty of these. What did I just say? The MDMA is two or three sessions of MDMA. Not like, oh, I have to take Paxil every single day because as long as I have PTSD. No, you do this, you know, session of psychotherapy and these medicines, and then it's better because we're addressing the core. We're not putting band-aids on things. So with the psilocybin, I think it was one or two sessions with psilocybin, 80% curated a year for cigarette smoking. And then Ibogaine is a very hard, it's a hardcore psychedelic. It is maybe the most, you know, kind of treacherous. It's, you have to really go through a good medical screening because there can be cardiac complications, but it has been shown to be one of the most effective things for opioid addiction. And, you know, another notoriously difficult, like people have their Ibogaine experience, their withdrawal symptoms are next to nothing. And that's such a change from most of the, you know, the withdrawal things that we have to go through now. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's, so we went through MDMA and psilocybin. And I, I think those are, those are three of the big ones. Psilocybin is also being researched for depression. And then DMT and ayahuasca. DMT is the ingredient in ayahuasca, but you can take them in two different forms, multiple different forms. But those two are the primary ones. They have been found to be responsible for neurogenesis. So now there's a study that's giving stroke victims DMT to help regenerate some of the damaged areas of the brain after the stroke. So you've mentioned a number of different therapeutic treatments. Do we think they all work in similar ways? Like what's the biology going on there? Oh, here was the other one I was going to mention that's the most important and shame on me for forgetting for even five seconds. Ketamine, because it's the one that is available now, has been shown extremely efficacious against suicidal ideation. So, you know, somebody comes to us and and says that they are contemplating suicide. We, if all we have is putting them on an SSRI, we know that that takes six weeks or something to to ramp up. Ketamine can do it in one session. It can break that suit because it takes you, you know, it dissociates you and it takes you to a place where, as it was described to me, people who have had no hope for months or years can like experience a minute or so of bliss and they think, oh, hold it. There is something to live for. That is possible. I can feel bliss. This is, you know, it's just my circumstances currently. And, and it kind of breaks that cycle and that pattern. It's like a pattern interrupt. So ketamine is great for treatment resistant depression and specifically suicidality. And so you just asked me, oh, do they all work the same way? A number of them work by affecting the serotonin receptor. So the ones that are called classic psychedelics, that's your LSD, psilocybin, DMT, they work on the serotonin receptor. And so, you know, we know SSRIs are working on with serotonin as well. So there's kind of that, that crossover there. And then ketamine works on an NDMA receptor. So it works more with glutamate, but what they're finding, for example, DMT, they are doing MRI studies and it shows that like different parts of the brain are being lit up and others are being taken offline. And so what a lot of these do, and this is a part of the, this is a part of anatomy we were never taught about, something called the default mode network. And the best way I think about it is it's that constant voice that's in your head, just like always there. That's your default mode network. And you like, it's like if you slide down a, a snowy hill every day in the same groove, you know, you're talking to yourself the same way all the time, every day. It's really hard. If that, if that self-talk is negative, that's how are you going to get out of that depression, right? I'm worthless. I'm no good, et cetera, et cetera. No self-acceptance. What psychedelics help do is they take that default mode network offline and reset it a bit. So then all of a sudden you've got a fresh hill of snow and you can sled down a different way. You don't have to go down that path again. And so that's, you know, they're still deciding and figuring out and investigating how exactly all of these work, but those are some of the mechanisms by which we found them to be therapeutic. So tell us some of the stories 
of people who've taken psychedelics and how they've helped them. I know through the plant medicine podcast, you actually have patient stories on, on a regular basis. Pick one that sticks out of a story of someone who got a psychedelic and it really changed their life. Marcus Capone, and he's very out and, and would love me to share his name and his organization because it's called Vets, but he was a special forces operator for years. But even before that, he was a football player. And so he had a lot of traumatic brain injury between the two. And then, you know, with his job in, in the special forces, he also had what they thought was probably some PTSD. But those of us who were working in these PTSD and TBI have a lot of overlap and it's really hard to know what symptoms are coming from what and how to treat which thing. And so Marcus gets out of the military and his, he starts drinking, he's depressed, but his mental function starts deteriorating to the point where he went to put up uh, Christmas lights with his family and he couldn't remember how to like put the lights on the tree, like very basic things. And they had tried so many different neurotherapies trying to fix him cognitively. And obviously the other things like drinking weren't helping, but there was a result of how depressed he was that he couldn't even like remember things anymore. And his wife, Amber, at the end of her rope, found somebody that, you know, somebody in the special operators community had said, hey, we're finding success with this treatment called Ibogaine. And so he went down and he did a combined treatment that has one, which is Ibogaine, which I said is that kind of really hardcore psychedelic that comes from Gabon. And it's used in the Buiti tradition. So it has like an ancestral tradition. And they gave him the Ibogaine one day, which kind of defrags your entire brain and goes through your whole, like it flashes every moment of your life behind be, before your eyes. So you get to deal with traumas and you get to, most people say they feel like it's just a traumatic 24-hour experience where they wake up feeling like a new puppy. And then the next day they gave him something called 5-MeO-DMT which is more of a 15-minute experience, but it's essentially the most kind of spiritually powerful. And people find this like they have rebirths or they might meet God or they might die. Like it's very intense, but they have found that combination to be very successful. Marcus improved. Marcus is cognitively normal at this point. That was like that. And yes, he still has to take supplements, et cetera. But that was the turning point that that somehow, you know, started some regeneration of neurons or repatterning something it, when nothing else worked. He's no longer drinking alcohol. Not, you know, his depression is better and his cognitive function is back to normal. And so I think that was a really impressive story. And then, you know, on my podcast, I also had another special forces guy. His name's Mikey. And he was addicted to meth. He got into meth in while he was a Navy SEAL. And same thing, you know, it's an addiction and nothing was was working for him. And he actually did 5-MeO-DMT that I just mentioned. And that helped, you know, reset. A lot of times people just need a reset. And more than just some therapeutic reset, their brain needs to be reset some way. And these medicines in whatever kind of ways that we do and do not know about have the power to do that. Two things come up as I listen to both of these stories. One is it sounds like the benefits from the first treatment, like this is the kind of thing where people find benefit right away. The other is you didn't say it outright, but I got the feeling that one or both of them probably had to leave the U.S. to get these treatments. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Both of them had to go to, I believe, Mexico for these treatments. And up until very recently, if you wanted a therapeutic psychedelic treatment, you probably were not getting it done in the United States. Even currently, you are probably not getting it done. So the only thing that is legal in the United States is ketamine. And by 2023, MDMA should be legal as a medicine through the, that's through the FDA approval. And then in the most recent election, Oregon, via Measure 109, voted to 
legalize a medical version of psilocybin, which is the component in, in mushrooms. So the entire state of Oregon, it's going to take them two years to get this up and running, but there will be, this is why I think it's so important for doctors, especially those of you in or near Oregon to know this is that in two years, your patients can go through this medical model that they're setting up. And it's a very interesting model. It's not just going to be through doctors. It's going to be through different people who's undergone this training, but you will be able to get and use psilocybin mushrooms in Oregon in a medical capacity. And I'm going to say that the medical capacity, I assume, is going to be kind of lax, kind of like the medical marijuana one was as well. But suddenly we're going to have one out of 50 states with a way that doctors can interact with patients via psilocybin. And so that's why this is, you know, this is happening. This is going to be here. And, and, and physicians who are seeing patients, it's important to, to pay attention to what's coming because your patients are going to start asking pretty soon, are, you know, especially your patients that have treatment-resistant depression and they've tried everything else. And they're probably Googling all day long, what's new for depression? They might see these. And, and so, yeah, at this point, like ayahuasca, which is great for many things, ad addressing trauma, especially that's not going to happen in the U.S. Psilocybin, mostly not happening in the U.S. Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, you have to go to Mexico for most of those. Psilocybin, you can get in Jamaica, you can get that in Holland. And Canada has now let a number of people through the Right to Try Act, those who are terminal, because can psilocybin is amazing for end-of-life anxiety. And so Canada is being really forward thinking, letting patients get that. But um, yeah, still, it's, it's a struggle to find a lot of these therapies. In the first half of the show, Lynn Marie and I talk about the history of the use of psychedelics in the United States. After the break, we'll talk about the future. But first. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Nexa 3D, a 3D manufacturing innovator that's shaping the future of a projected $150 billion market. 
Nexa 3D's best-in-class solutions give customers a productivity advantage of 20 times their competitors at up to 85% lower cost. You can get in early on Nexa 3D and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash EAI. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash EAI. Do you think that cannabis and CBD have opened the door for the psychedelics? It seems like the success of medical marijuana maybe really is the entrance drug for some of these other therapeutic causes. I absolutely believe so. I mean, we've got the medical model and then a recreational model, and both of those states are showing benefit. You know, I think, you know, you see, you see and I haven't looked a lot into this, but I, I remember seeing things like DUI numbers are down or opioid addictions are down in the states where there's recreational marijuana, like, or cannabis. So I'm hoping that it's setting a great standard. And it's also teaching us, what, you know, a lot of lessons about how to do this more ethically, because in legalization, a lot of small growers got got stomped on and and we, we want to make sure like in psychedelics, uh, once you've done psychedelics and you feel that connected, you want to make sure that this is not just available to the people who have wealth. And so a big point of, of what we're all trying to do in getting access to people is to make sure that access is equitable to all communities. So we're learning, we're learning lessons from cannabis and that as well. I feel like there were two reasons that cannabis was so successful at eventually becoming legalized, especially for medical purposes. One was that there was such a huge group of supporters who were already using it in the U.S. The other was that there was a great business case for it, right? So there were business people really pushing for this because they felt like it was going to be a good way to make money in the U.S., is there the same case for psychedelics? Is there the same business interests looking to push legislation towards legalizing these things? So it's interesting. They say that cannabis and psychedelics have gone about it in opposite directions. Like we pushed for recreational cannabis. What's the big push in psychedelics? All the money in psychedelics, a whole lot of it, is by psychedelic pharmaceutical agencies. So there's so many of these. You look at the Canadian Stock Exchange. There's just so many psychedelic companies, the shroom boom, they sometimes call it. They're finding ways to do this and that with synthetic psilocybin. They're finding ways to take the trip out of LSD so you get the benefits without having to go through 10 hours of tripping. There's so many companies because there's so many different, you know, substances. Like I rattled off all those substances. They're finding different ways. So it's coming from business and the top down. And so I don't know that at this point they're hardcore lobbying the 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 psychedelic companies, because I think they're going at it in a more prescription medication type way that doesn't necessarily require the same recreational legalization. So I think that's, that's where the two differ a bit. We've talked about therapeutics and you mentioned earlier, this idea of microdosing, and we haven't really touched on it. What is the role of microdosing? Is that as a therapeutic is there a more recreational means of using it that way? Kind of walk us through microdosing and, and why it's important. It, well, I, I'll say it's controversial because there is not a ton of research out on it. And the research that has come out is, especially when you have only a few studies, if one study says one thing and another study says another, then you're screwed. Like if we could have 50 articles, maybe 40 and I would say one and the one would say the other. But at this point, we have like one that says it works if you think it works. Literally, it came out essentially saying like, if you believe in it, it works. And then we have a few others that show it does increase maybe 
and forgive me that I haven't memorized this, but maybe it increases a little bit of sociability and a little bit of, of creativity, but it actually decreased a little bit of focus, even though a bunch of people in Silicon Valley are taking it for focus. So some of the studies have shown opposite effects. What we mostly have on psychedelics is a, a gentleman named Dr. James Fadiman, who's been on my show twice. He is kind of the godfather of microdosing, and he and his study partner, they've collected thousands, I think something like 10,000 different use cases of people using microdosing and asked what they were experiencing and what it was good for. And so he's got a list of, you know, people, he found it's good for PMS. Some people are just taking it for the five days before their period. Some people find it's good to help, help athletic performance, or some people found it made their anxiety worse because essentially what a microdose will do is it's going to kind of subtly amplify whatever you're already feeling. And so if you're already in an anxious state and you take a microdose, it may make you more anxious, but a whole lot of people have found it as a great way to, you know, they they wanted to get off their SSRIs or something. And so they start tapering and they start ramping up microdosing at the same time. And if it's placebo or not, regardless, they're, they're finding success with this. And so it is a great gateway because we're not asking everybody, well, first off, we're not asking anybody to do anything, but microdosing itself is not asking you to take a heroic dose and go see God and confront your ego. It's just like, here, you shouldn't even feel this because that's, if it's, if you can feel it, it's not a microdose. The definition is it's subperceptible. So you may like, I tried a round of microdosing myself. And the one thing I noticed that was different is I laughed out loud a lot more. Hmm. Like, so it wasn't like, oh, I'm feeling the mushrooms, but I just noticed like, wow, I'm by myself and I'm just laughing out loud at this, you know, thing I read or something. So there, you know, there's small changes, but did I like laughing out loud more than not? Yes. You know, like generally there, there are pleasant changes. It's, it's almost kind of like a, a psychic multivitamin or something that people say, you know, it just kind of gives you that extra little boost in mysterious ways. And so we've got a whole lot more research needs to be done on that, but it is quite popular right now. Let's talk about the research in general for psychedelics. Are there some big studies that could change the face of psychedelic use in the United States over the next five years? Are there, are we waiting on some information to come out? Well, the phase three studies that MAPS is doing, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, the, the phase three trials they're doing for MDMA for PTSD are almost done. And so it's when that those are done, because all the phase one, phase two, you know, everything has, has shown to this point extreme efficacy. Like I was telling you, two thirds of the people at one year still do not qualify as having PTSD. So they're just in, I think, what's, you know, probably like the last round of these. And that's that's what stands between us and having MDMA as a medicine. And then there, uh, psilocybin has just moved in, magic mushrooms, has just moved into phase three trials, I believe, for depression through, and I think that one is not, no, there are some locations in the US that are doing that study as well. And so those are those are two huge ones. And Johns Hopkins has already finished a number of them. Like I said, the, the one that found 80% smoking cessation, that's finished a number of years ago. Johns Hopkins has moved on. So the Johns Hopkins is the first US psychedelic research center. And they moved on to studying anorexia, OCD. I, I think I've heard somebody, maybe not them, is going to study Alzheimer's. Like there are so many studies that are that are being incepted soon. Somebody called Unlimited Sciences. They made they worked with Johns Hopkins on a study because a great way to find out what to study next is to find out what it's helping people with already. So this is what happened with cannabis. Like cannabis, uh, the people who did. If you've heard the Charlotte's Web story, which is the you know young girl who had. Uh, Dravet syndrome, I believe. And the only thing that helped her was when this company in Colorado made CBD for her. That's how CBD as an epilepsy treatment came, came around. And so Realm of Caring was who was the nonprofit started from that whole 
incident and Realm of Caring started gathering stories. Okay, what's CBD helping with your, and so from all of that, it was like, okay, we found that people are saying it's helping with their kids this and it's helping with their epilepsy and maybe helping with their, whatever it's helping with, then they could go investigate that. So Unlimited Sciences had partnered with, partnered with Johns Hopkins to ask about psilocybin. What's it helping you with? Because then they put out a study about cluster headaches, things that we had not thought of before. But if a bunch of people report, I took psilocybin and my cluster headaches went away. There's reports people taking psilocybin and their stuttering gets better. There's just a lot of things that we hadn't thought about. So if enough people report that, then that's a great new avenue for research. Up until this point, we've been talking about psychedelics and their medical usage. Is there an argument for all-out legalization the way we're now seeing with cannabis throughout the country? What are the some of the positives and negatives of the idea of just democratizing it to the public? Yeah, I'm a massive fan of legalization of everything because to illegalize something, to make something illegal is... If you look back, so much of the war on drugs was actually the war on poverty or the war on uh, people who were not white and not at all. You know, the, the penalty for cocaine versus crack is like, you know, something like five days versus five years. And it's the same substance in different form. It just who was using cocaine? Wall Street people and who was using crack? Different communities that they wanted to keep down. And so, so much of the prosecution of making these things illegal is not about them being dangerous. You know, look at what's the killing most people now, Percocet, you know, something that is is legal. And so I'm for legalizing all these because, for example, what Portugal has done is decriminalized all drugs. In fact, that's what Oregon did alongside Measure 109. They passed Measure 110, which decriminalizes most small amounts of substances. And so if you're found with a small amount of something that that would lead you to need treatment, maybe you're addicted to heroin, does it do you better to be thrown in jail or does it do you better to get the health care you need to overcome the addiction, right? Like who needs to take a, you know, a, a potentially productive member of society and have them live off the state for the next 20 years, or we could get them better and they could go back to being a productive member of society. Like we have too many people in jails for, especially for cannabis, like ridiculous. This thing that now we're like, oh, there's medicinal purposes. And we've got poor people sitting in jail because they had, you know, a bag of cannabis on them at some point in time. So yes, I'm a big fan of legalization and and the the treatment. So that's what that's what in Oregon they decriminalized. And then if you get found with these substances, you can either get a little citation like a ticket or you can go to treatment. And they, you know, it's like that's what's going to help people. This is that's that's a productive society move. And it's a way to to equalize things and stop this war on poverty and war on you know diverse communities. I feel like when it comes to controlled substances, there's really a dividing line. I think about things like fentanyl and heroin, and it's much easier to support criminalization of having such things just because we know how dangerous there are. Then we look at things like cannabis, and most of us kind of look at it and say, yeah, that's just silly, because the truth of the matter is most likely people are not going to hurt themselves with cannabis. If they're going to hurt themselves, it's certainly not any more than they would with alcohol. Where do you think psychedelics fall on that continuum? Do you see them more as cannabis-like in the sense that it's probably harder to hurt yourself with them versus kind of some of the other hardcore drugs, which can cause respiratory depression and, and we have problems with overdoses? Yeah, for sure. Now you brought up a good point, fentanyl and heroin, right? Fentanyl is legal and heroin is not. Right. But they're they're going to do the same thing. Right. They're, they're both going to do respiratory depression. They're both terribly dangerous. So what Dr. Carl Hart really opened my mind to and he just put a book out called Drug Use for Grownups. He is, a, I believe, a, he's a professor at Columbia University, but he openly says, I use heroin. And he he's his point in that is that 
all drugs can be used responsibly. Like alcohol can easily be abused. Benzos can easily be abused. The things that are not even prescription, like alcohol, easily be abused. Things that, you know, like you said, heroin, meth, those are definitely probably have a higher addiction potential. But at this point that we have decided, for example, ketamine is the one that's available now. And it's one of the few psychedelics that that has any addictive properties. Psilocybin doesn't, LSD doesn't, only ketamine. So you could be starting to get addicted to ketamine now. And of course, it's legal, right? And so it's really when we put some as legal and good and safer and better. And then these other ones, then we get back to that same, well, then who's using them? And and then we end up in the same kind of war on certain communities situation. And the, what, what that's called is psychedelic exceptionalism. When we say, oh, our drugs are good, the ones we're using and we're studying and this and that. And, and Dr. Hart's point is, I find I can have some therapeutic thoughts on, on heroin. You know, it's like how these things are used What's, I mean, heroin, if you're going to share needles and do all that kinds of things, yeah, they're extremely dangerous, but that's because we make it be this shady backstreet thing that you have to do. And so it's really hard for me to, to draw a line. Yeah. I mean, in my heart, I, I feel that it's the psychedelics. Most of the ones that we're talking about are safe, closer to the cannabis. But I also just want to keep it in mind that like creating psychedelic exceptionalism can start to lead us down that same path that the initial war on drugs did. I know in my mind, at least one is overdose potential, right? So again, yeah. I think of things like cannabis and, and the overdose potential is fairly small. Is it safe to say the same with psychedelics? I mean, is it pretty hard to really do yourself damage with psychedelics? Oh, yeah. There's, there was this study, that, not study, uh, an article came out last year. This woman had done 500 times the normal dose of LSD on accident. LSD is really easy to overdose because people are putting like very often putting a drop on a little piece of paper who knows what's on that you know like that one is i cannot wait till they have lsd as a medicine because it's going to be a lot more easy to to decide what people are taking but she took 500 times i think she had no idea somehow she survived like i i i don't know that there's any overdose cases forgive me that i have not looked this up but if there have been overdoses i think generally it's because alcohol is also involved so i think there might have been a psilocybin overdose but then alcohol is involved and so then you've got your you know that's the which which one led to the the you know if you're if you're altered on psilocybin and then you're gonna vomit from the alcohol and of course things are more dangerous so yeah there's very little first first of all things like ayahuasca and ibogaine which are pretty painful there's vomiting and etc nobody wants to do that more than they have to do that there's like no abuse potential there and like i said most of them don't work on the dopamine receptor which is generally what's required for some kind of abuse potential and then overdose potential is just yeah this it's extremely low So I just want to transition for a moment on the Plant Medicine Podcast. Uh, It's a wonderful podcast. I've listened to several episodes, but I found really interesting in how you formatted your material. You do kind of a four-episode roundup of each drug. Tell us a little bit about that format and how you've been doing it. Well, thank you for noticing. I put a lot of work into the format um, because what I wanted to create was an encyclopedia of medicines, and I wanted to address all the holes that somebody could poke in psychedelic therapy, right? So if somebody comes in, they're like, well, I don't know what it feels like to be a patient. Okay. So every medicine set, we start off with a patient experience. We're going to put you in the, you know, in the mind of somebody who was actually having that experience. Well, what's the, what's the research behind it? Episode number two is the psych is the uh, scientific research. So we'll have a researcher on who has 
been conducting these studies and they talk about their findings and hopefully they can talk about some of the other findings that people have had. Number three, it's like, what am I, what's it going to be like to go into a ceremony? Well, I have a facilitator on and talking about the practitioner method. So, you know, ketamine is a great example. What is it like for people who come to your ketamine clinic? What kind of therapy do you do with them? What kind of setup do you have? Ayahuasca is a big one. What kind of ceremony do you host? And then the last thing is people always ask, well, is it legal? Where did this come from? And so we have a history and legality episode if that's what people are are interested in. And I just wanted it to be so you don't have to like start from the beginning and listen to 50 episodes to find the information you want. If you're thinking, okay, I've got PTSD and I'm thinking of doing MDMA, what's the science behind it? You can go straight to that episode and find your answers. So the Plant Medicine Podcast is a great resource, but if you are out there in the world today and you're not ready to wait the three or four years until some of this is legal in the U.S., what type of resources are available for your average person to learn about psychedelics and how they might help them? There are a number of websites out there that are, because I thought you were going to be like, what are your resources to get these medicines before they're legal? And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so you're saying if the if you've exhausted all the plant medicine podcast episodes, where can you look for information? The thirdwave.co is, is one of the original websites about psychedelics. That's got a ton of great information. You can always go to maps.org. Like I said, maps is the organization that's putting on all these trials. And uh, they often have, and this is something that's really important to mention, is that you know, like we said, these are one or two time things, but it's for them to be efficacious, there needs to be preparation and integration. So you don't just go do your therapy, take your journey, maybe do your one therapy after like there's preparation to get your intentions ready. And then there's integration afterward, because when you've had your like with some of these medicines, you have your ego dissolved where you're just like, oh, my gosh, how do I go back to thinking like I care about somebody liking my comment on on Facebook when suddenly like you've seen the universe and what you have to come back to the world. And you, sometimes it takes some people some integration to get back to the world and like kind of reset their priorities and their, and their goals in life. And so there's lots of resources. There's one called psychedelic.support and that's full of integration and preparation people. Maps on maps.org has another integration list of people. My website, plantmedicine.org has a resources list. Yeah, there's a lot. Oh, the psychedelic medicine association.org. We have Uh, a lot of resources on our website as well. So, you know, as this becomes popular, first off, there's so much money going to psychedelics that everybody's jumping on the let's talk about psychedelics train. So there's a ton of stuff out there. It's just a matter of kind of getting the right information, quality information and and sifting through the noise to find really what's the answer to your question. Because many people are coming at this one, like, I have this condition. What can I do for this condition? Or maybe they're a physician and they're like, I would really like to work with ketamine in my practice to help my patients. Then, you know, that's a, another set of information. That's especially what the Psychedelic Medicine Association would like to help people with is, you know, the helping clinicians learn more about these medicines. Lynn Marie Morsky, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Certainly you've opened up my mind to the use of psychedelics. And what really is clear to me is that these medicines are often facilitators to dealing with some of the most difficult problems we have and that they can be integrated into our current treatment modalities to help people get a lot more out of their treatment. So it's really exciting. And I suspect over the next few years, we will see an increase in use, especially here in the U.S., where we're getting more and more studies showing their benefit. I'd like to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life. And if people want to learn more, where can they find you? 
the what's up next in my life is that you know I have recently founded the Psychedelic Medicine Association with some partners over in Europe. It is a global association, and our entire mission is to educate frontline healthcare providers, physicians, primary care docs, psychiatrists, therapists, all probably all of you listening to this episode or some giant chunk of you on these medicines. We're not we're not trying to teach you how to do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, but we want you to feel comfortable when your patients come in asking questions about psychedelics or if they come into you with with a condition that psychedelics can treat, we'd love to have you be more comfortable telling them about the medicines and what contraindications there are and when they're indicated. The psychedelicmedicineassociation.org is where you can find that. And we have our first ever meeting coming up in September. It's virtual, but it is the first world, as far as we know, the world's first ever psychedelic conferences for medical, for mental health professionals. And that's called the SANA symposium, S-A-N-A symposium.com. We're going to have worldwide leaders in the psychedelic science movement and psychedelic therapeutics give talks so that people can become more familiar with these medicines. So that's, that's what's next for me. And that's how people can find out more. This has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself, doc G I'd like to thank Lynn Marie Morsky. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the community segment. I just wanted to put a shout out for our Facebook group. If you are enjoying the episodes every Monday and Thursday and want to continue the conversation, the best place to do it is in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. There we have all sorts of conversations where we talk about personal finance, sometimes financial independence, politics, you name it. It is a place where we meet with the community and have those discussions that begin in the podcast. As part of our earner and investor segment, I wanted to talk about a little meme I posted it's actually a picture, right? And you have a father reading a fairy tale to a daughter, and she's in bed. And the caption is, skip to the part where the princess creates multiple streams of income, builds wealth, and invests it all in cash-flowing assets. Now, this is the little daughter talking to the father who's sitting there with the fairy tale book open on his lap. And I found it really interesting. First of all, let's get some comments. Carly wrote in the Facebook group, The Real Happy Ending. Robert said, indeed, a fairy tale. And Jason said of his wife, Diana, that is her bedtime story. You know, I think this cartoon is funny for a few reasons. For one, the vision that it presents of being financially stable or financial independence or even heaven or nirvana is really just one of three ways I think we can reach our financial goals. So this is the place where we develop multiple streams of income, build wealth, and invest in cash-flowing assets. I think that's one way to get to financial independence. It's one way to be financially secure, but there are other ways too. Like, why isn't the fairy tale that someone finds a job that they're passionate about, that they love doing it, and they do it for the rest of their life happily. I mean, I think that is just as much a path to happiness as well as stable finances as the passive income, cash-flowing streams of revenue version. The other model, which is the model I took, is in which you front-load the sacrifice, right? So where you work extremely hard, make a lot of money for 10 or 15 years, put that money in the stock market, and then retire with enough. 
So I think this cartoon is funny, but it really is just one vision of the fairy tale. I think that in truth, to get to our financial goals, we have three possible visions. One is the passion play, doing what you love doing it, doing it for the rest of your life. The other is front-loading the sacrifice. And the third are these passive cash-flowing income streams. But it also makes me question further, how much is this really the fairy tale? You know, I was stuck in this place where I dreamed of being financially independent. I wanted to leave my job as a physician. When I found out I was there, it wasn't the fairy tale. It wasn't Nirvana. I actually found that I was lacking in meaning and purpose and identity, and that didn't feel particularly great. So we think of this place where we have enough money as being excellent and wonderful and feeling good, but instead I had used wealth as a false goal. And when I got to that false goal, I realized that there was nothing there. There was nothing there for me of significance. So when I look at this cartoon Part of me wants to look at the daughter and say, the fairy tale is finding what you want to do with your life. The fairy tale is describing and striving towards what gives you a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. What helps you forge connections with the people around you? I think that's the fairy tale. Not this picture in the cartoon of us finding a way just to financially support ourselves for the rest of our lives. Because one way or another, hopefully, we'll get there. Hopefully, we'll make enough money and have enough things if we're lucky, if things go our way. But the much harder question is, who do you want to be and what do you want to do with your life? And coming to the answer to those questions, in my opinion is really the fairy tale that we're all looking for. So it's a cute cartoon, but I think it misses the point, a point that it's taken me a long time to realize. When I wrote a blog post about it, I called it the money mind meld, this idea that wealth is a mirage, a mirage we spend a huge amount of time achieving, And yet when we get there, we find out there really is nothing there because then we have to build the rest of our lives. I think if we're going to be earners and investors, and I say earn and invest when I'm talking about this podcast, it's important that we earn, that we make money, that we build businesses, etc. But it's really also important that we invest in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about the stock market here. I'm talking about investing in the kind of person you want to be achieving the kind of goals you really want to achieve, and making the kind of connections in the world you want to make. And I hope that this podcast helps you ponder those decisions. What are the conversations I want to have today that will help me earn and invest for the future so I can have that kind of future that I truly want? Yes, a future that's financially stable, But more important, a future in which you can use your money as a lever to do those things that are deeply important for you. For me, I found that that was not necessarily practicing all of medicine, but it was practicing a slice of medicine called hospice and palliative care. But I also found that money could be a lever so that I could do things that I really enjoy, like making this podcast and writing and public speaking. 
I hope you're able to find the same thing. I hope you're able to see past the fairy tale of the cartoon to what's deeper and more important. I hope you truly are able to come to and meet your dreams. I hope you have enough money to do that. But more importantly, I hope you have enough courage and insight to realize that the money is just the beginning and that you can start doing those kind of things, building your identity, purpose, and meaning in life even before you have enough money to call yourself financially independent. We talk about wealth building all the time, but this is life building. This is building happiness and contentment into your everyday life. And it'd really be a shame to have to wait to your 40s or 50s or 60s to that point where you feel like you have enough money to get there. I'm hoping that you can get there much sooner by being a little bit more thoughtful and also by redefining your fairy tale. That's right. Redefining your fairy tale. So you're not dreaming about passive income streams. You're not dreaming about some net worth goal but you're instead dreaming of what you want to be. Who you want to be in this world and what you want to do with your future. All right. Awesome. That was a lot Thank of fun. You. That was Yay. a lot of fun. That was definitely, it definitely was exactly kind of what I wanted is just to touch on what it is, what it's about, how it's being used and, and kind of just jump in. So I, I thought that was good. Was there anything you felt like we should have covered that we didn't? Cause I can always splice things in. Um, I guess just, you know, from my personal standpoint is how, what this means for current, like I tried to throw in as much as I could in like the last few seconds, but what it like, you got clinicians listening and this yeah. might seem and like some remind you, this is about. not a doctor or clinician podcast. Oh, it's not. Oh, okay. No. Okay. So earn and invest maybe is about 10, 15% physicians because gotcha. I'm a physician, but it's, it's more okay. 90 to 95% general finance people, et cetera. So then no, we covered all the things. Good. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this. I thought it was a lot of fun. This is going to come out very well. I probably won't put it out for a good six weeks or so, depending on where my schedule is, but I will edit it up and send it to you a few days before. So you can take a listen. Uh, amazing. And I totally trust you. Like you don't even need to do that. You can just I, I tend to it. do it anyway, just so do you can it hear it, but I will, okay. I will let you know as it comes closer. Thanks again. Well, and have I a great it. weekend. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. 
Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.